0: I want to pray tonight for uh, JT, who's a junior uh, here in Prineville, the high school, and uh, a kid that I got to witness to tonight, got to share Jesus with over at Pioneer Park. And uh, just uh, one of those more hostile times of sharing your faith, um, just... Uh, trying to reason with him, just trying to show him that Christianity is so reasonable. If you just be a fair inquirer and, uh, you know, just to a, a junior in high school that truth is relative to, and you might as well worship a volcano spewing, uh, beer spewing volcano, as he put it, and, you know, just um, just getting to communicate with him love, you know, that if I didn't love him, I wouldn't have even come up to him to tell him what I believe with all my heart. And uh, turns out that he was raised in a church, and uh, he's kind of veered off into, uh, you know, this idolatry. You know, and uh, his parents came up right when I was saying goodbye to him, and you could just and I said, "Yeah, I'm just tell, talking to your son about Jesus, and I'm the pastor down the street here." And just uh, you just see like this like relief, you know, and his parents like, oh, that's so good, you know, and this is our daughter Faith, you know, and, and uh, so let's pray for JT tonight, you know, just um, as we get into the word, and Lord, just um, pray for that young man, just uh, had a love for him the minute I saw him, reminded me of another friend of mine, and, and just, uh, we pray for his heart of rebellion, and his hard-heartedness right now, and his pride, and, Lord, that even now as the concert's going on in the park, that <clears throat> he'd be pondering the things that I spoke to him, like Paul, not not madness, but words of truth and of reason, and just trying to, to reason with him logically, and Lord, I just pray you'd convict him of, of just the foolishness that he was speaking, and the love on my end, and the hostility on his end, and Lord, just that, um, Lord, he just sorrow over the way that conversation went and, um, Lord, that you, as your word says, you grant repentance Lord, that you'd grant repentance to him tonight. We intercede for him, Lord, and, uh, just entrust him into your hand, Lord. One man plants, another one waters, but God gives the increase. We pray we'd see JT on that day when we stand before you, Lord. In Jesus' name too, Lord, we also just pray for this Bible study and <clears throat> the book of Daniel, this historical book, this prophetic chapter, um, and Lord, that you would just make us like little children tonight. We'd have faith like a child as we study this, just this familiar lesson. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, uh, the image of gold that we read about in Daniel chapter three tonight, along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a fiery furnace, uh, you know, we remember this story from some of our earliest memories, some of our first days in Sunday school, and, uh, just neat to, um, sit down with Russell and Laney and and Lindsay this morning, and we got out one of the children's Bibles, and, and we read, uh, Daniel basically one, two, and three and ended with where we'd be studying tonight and where the children are studying tonight. And, uh, just so cool that my little four and a half year old is familiar so far with each one of these chapters that we've been through. He, he knew it, you know, and just praise the Lord for our children's ministry workers, you know, and let's be prayerful for them. And perhaps you would have, uh, just the Lord stir in your heart to help out back there you know, the children are the future of the church, you know, and, um, but it was just funny because we read about it. I'm probably gonna talk a little bit about our family reading today throughout the chapter, but uh, it was funny. We're driving here and Lindsay says, yeah, you know, I was studying downstairs for the children's portion of it. You know, there's a picture of the fiery furnace and there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, you know, Russell says, you know, those are those three boys, you know, and, and, you know, they didn't worship the image. And, And, uh, yeah, I really like that. I can't wait for that to come out on Blu-ray is what he said. And we're like, what? (laughs) We don't have a Blu-ray player that never comes up in our home, but, um, certainly makes for great drama, right? Like TNT, you know, the Bible knows drama and we're going to see it in this chapter, but you guys are familiar with the story, Daniel chapter three. If you're not You're going to get familiar with it tonight. But imagine, you know, and it's easy to imagine now in 2011 that each home is linked together, not by just a TV or even the internet, but some sort of computer terminal that can be accessed by uh, the controlling powers of the state, by the government, you know, at any moment they wish. They could know what was going on in the home. You know, they could give us information. You know, they could realize our responding to certain uh, you know, to certain news that comes across the wire, they could sense our mood. They could sense our demeanor. You know, and, and imagine that during that period of of time, uh, a president would assign a national religion to to the United States. You know, you know, we remember when we were strongest was when we were one nation under God. So you know, let's bring that back, and let's not make it the God of the Bible. Let's make it just kind of this you know, unified, uh, you know, ecumenical God that we could be united over. And, you know, through this terminal, this computer terminal, you know, we'll, we'll mandate that every person, you know, every day must bow down before an image of this God that we'll display. And in their living room with each person in the home, they must bow and worship for a whole minute and acknowledge the the entity that the United States has created, this God, this God that doesn't step on anybody's toes, this God that's all-encompassing, this God to whom truth is relative. And just imagine that, you know, if, if you, you know, messed up one day, if you messed up one time and you didn't get your whole family together to worship it, you know, you you lost your job, you know, or you took a pay cut you know, and you lose your job. And, you know, if that continues to happen or, or perhaps there's any sort of rebellion towards this image, towards this time of worship in your home, you know, then you're put in prison. And and if that continues, if if this rebellion, even in prison, you don't bow down to the image, then ultimately you'll be uh, killed in just a, in a brutal fashion. And, uh, and, you know, it's not too far off, you know, especially with technology today. And as you study Bible prophecy, that something like that Is going to happen sooner than later. And and, you know, you guys could probably think of an even more intriguing illustration of it. But you know, this is really what happened in the days of Daniel. This is really what happened in the days of his three friends. But the question is knowing that the government can monitor this and, and it knew if you were worshiping, what would you do? You know, would you sign on? Would you participate in this? Just talking with Russell as we're reading this story today, and i trying to, you know bring it to modern day you know and say you know you know that in other countries Russell that when a family's gathered like this reading children's Bibles and reading Bibles that the police come and tear down the door and drag mommies and daddies out to prison or kill people you know that that happens and just kind of see that look on of bewilderment on his face and to say and what do we do if someone comes into our home and does that do we do we say that we don't love Jesus? Do we don't believe in Jesus? And no, that would not be good, you know? And uh, it's just, it's happening. It's a reality in other countries. And, you know, we really are, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to be some crazy political nut, but we really are on that track in this country. Perhaps within our lifetime, we'll, we'll face that type of persecution, so bringing the issue from hundreds of years before Jesus to, you know, 2011, kind of get a picture of what that would be like in your mind. And uh, and if you could just picture, you know, a movie being made about it in, in perhaps, you know, 24, if you've ever watched that show, you know, the fashion of 24, where they kind of invented this cinematography of, in one screenshot you actually have three different screenshots you have a camera you know on on the image that we're going to read of tonight so there's the idol there's the image there's this great statue and there's a camera on it and within the same TV screen over here there's the image maker, Nebuchadnezzar, and he's reacting to how everybody's responding to the image that he's made. And then over here you've got the the camera is on the non-conformists who see it all playing out and who watch it happening and who you know swallowed the big lump in their throat, realizing that with this with this law made to bow into worship that they're going to need to make a stand and they're going to be persecuted for it. So you kind of have these three different camera angles that synonymously we're watching. And tonight we're going to see uh, eight different things. We're going to see the image, the inventor, the idolaters, the inquisition. We're going to see the integrity of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the intervention. We're going to see the incarnation And we're going to see the invocation. Okay, so starting out, we've got chapter 3, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits. It's width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the uh, the province of Babylon. So first of all, we've got uh, the image. The image was made of gold, so it's valuable, Whether it was solid gold or whether it was overlaid with gold, there's some gold there. And, you know, you've seen the, the tele, you know, the the commercials. Gold. Nothing holds its value over the years like gold, you know? And the lady's just wearing gold all over you know and uh, the value is it was just as valuable then and um, it's a vast image it's a great image we'll see that in a second it's down on the plains of Iraq where the palm trees grow 50 to 90 feet tall so from a distance they look you know and and, you know Ken would probably know you know being in the Middle East just these massive palm trees from a distance they look huge and from standing underneath them just magnificent really and yet this image that nebuchadnezzar erects is comparable in size to these palm trees larger than actually and then we have in this image we've got value vastness and then we've got a void a void within this image perhaps it was hollow on the inside and it should have been because it's lifeless as it is monstrous it has no breath in its lungs it has no brain in its head Perhaps it was an image of Nebuchadnezzar or some other Babylonian God, but it, it was completely void. And then we have the inventor. We have the inventor of the image. We have Nebuchadnezzar, the king that we're familiar with by chapter three. Now the king of Babylon, really the greatest monarch that's ever lived. Okay. The greatest monarch, even biblically, the greatest world power that's ever lived. We see in this monarch, Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter two, we read of Nebuchadnezzar laying in bed and wondering what would happen to his kingdom. What's going to happen to Babylon? My dad was the king of Babylon. I was his commanding general. I really conquered the whole then known world. Then dad passed away. And now I'm the king of the world that I conquered. And I have 100% absolute authority, and no one rivals what I have to say. He's at the tippy top, okay? And he's, so he's there laying in bed and he's wondering, well, what's going to happen when I die? What's going to happen to my kingdom? That night, the Lord answers, where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And in this dream, he sees a great image. The word great is used two times in chapter two, that it's both great in size And it's also great in rank and in role. It's a chief of, of you know, it's it's a commander. Uh, It's a president, you know. So he sees this great image, great in size. It's a fearful image. It's a multi-metallic image. It's kind of a robo-idol, you know, just made out of all sorts of different metals. And you guys remember, it had a head of gold. It had chest and arms of silver. It had bellies and thighs of bronze, legs of iron. And remember last week we said that this really was a prophetic image of Anthony D'Angelo, bellies and thighs of bronze and legs of iron. You weren't here last year when I, or last week when I told that joke. So oh, you heard about it. OK. No one was laughing this time, so um, and, and you know, and then we see the feet partly of iron and partly of clay. So this is the image that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Then we know that a rock is in the dream and this rock is cut without hands and this rock comes and it just smashes the feet, partly of clay and partly of iron. And then it just pulverizes the gold and the silver and the bronze and the iron and it just smashes it. Bam, 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 bam. You know, this rock just obliterates this image to where it's nothing but powder and a wind comes along. It just blows that powder away like it was chaff on a wheat threshing floor. And then we see that it was at the time of those feet of clay and iron that that rock came and that rock became a mountain and spread over the whole world. And Daniel was the one, him and his friends, as they went and they sought the Lord, that the Lord showed what that dream was and what that dream meant. And the interpretation was, that Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. He was this head of gold. He was this superpower, super ruler. But after him there would come another to rule his kingdom. There would be an actual other kingdom. The Medes and the Persians were, you know, a little less in value and a little less in in uh uh, in, in strength. Okay. Uh, the Medo-Persians will come in. We'll see that in the book of Daniel. Then another kingdom will come in and it'll have a belly and and thighs of bronze. And that'll be the Greeks led by Alexander the great. And then you see legs of iron, this strong crushing superpower, the Romans. And then we see that in the end days, there will be this revived Roman empire, partly of Rome and partly just, you know, 10 Kings, and, and it'll be weak. It'll be so much weaker than that head of gold. And during that time of those ten kings, a revived Roman Empire, the rock of our salvation will come and he'll crush all other kingdoms and he'll set up his kingdom that will never have an ending. And so Daniel's interpretation told Nebuchadnezzar that, yes, you're the head of gold. Oh, that's good to hear. I hoped I was out of anything. I was the head of gold. But then it also told Nebuchadnezzar, and yes, your kingdom has an end. In fact, there will be four other kingdoms beside you that will rule this region. And so we have just a fallen condition in, you know, a lot of fallen conditions in chapter three here, but one of them in the inventor is pride and insecurity, Whenever we study the scriptures, we want to look for the fallen condition focus, and then we want to look for the redemption of that fallen condition, okay? So here in Nebuchadnezzar, there's a fallen condition. He has pride, and he has insecurity. Nebuchadnezzar rejoiced in the interpretation. That's great. Oh, yeah, that was my dream, and that's the interpretation, and he, he actually Uh, promotes Daniel for telling him the dream and promotes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But then he got to think about it. It appears that about two years have passed. And as he's thinking about it, he begins to think, wait a second, I'm the head of gold. No one's going to take over my kingdom. I'm Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, you know what? I don't like this head of gold, you know, chest and arms of silver and so on and so forth. I want it to be All gold. I want it to be all me. And so, what does he invent? An all gold image to be great and to be fearful. And we see that its dimensions are 90 feet tall, or actually, in a Babylonian cubit, 105 feet tall. 105 feet tall and 10 feet wide. Very narrow and very tall. 50 times the height of a man. Interesting that in 1854, an archaeologist named Julius Opert discovered that in the plains of Dura, there stands to this day uh, a a rectangular mound about 20 feet high and in an exact square of about 46 feet at the base resembling the pedestal for this colossal statue, he writes. So interesting, you might be able to go visit the platform for this today. So we have the image, we have the inventor, and in verses two through three, we have the idolaters. And let's look at it. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, administrators, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the officials of the province gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So keep in mind that Babylon is a massive empire. Okay. It covers all of Asia, it covers over up into, uh, you know, the, uh, the borders of Eastern Europe. It's, it's this massive empire. They've conquered so many different lands, you know, they, even Egypt pays tribute to Babylon at this point. And so, you know, Nebuchadnezzar calls all of the, the bigwigs, from all of his empire, which represents all sorts of different tribes, tongues, nations, all sorts of different people. Anyone that's a ruler is called to, to come to the plains of Dura. And so, you know, some people think that there were three, you know, scholars believe there were about 300,000, you know, big time officials that were brought into the plain at the time. So they're assembled together and, and just think back, if you will, towards, you know, high school and an assembly you remember those days, you know, you're, you're called into the gym and so everyone kind of comes in, there's a hustle and bustle and there's a curiosity about, you know, what's the assembly going to be about? I don't know, I hope it's one of those ones where you play games in the middle of the gym floor and you get lots of food, you know, well, I hope it's in a you know, a, a great uh, you know, motivational speaker, you know, right? and, and when and you're sitting there and there's just the, what is this all about? What is this all about? And, and there's this 105 foot tall thing with a giant sheet on top of it. You know, you are just waiting to be unveiled. And what is this? What do you suppose is going to be happening here? You know? And so they all come, they assemble and then they just stand before it and they just kind of wait and nothing happens. Nothing happens. They just stand and the clock goes tick tock. And then verse four, a herald cries out, a herald cries out to you. It's commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery and symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre and symphony with all kinds of music, all of the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the gold image, which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so we see all of these different tribes, all of these tongues, all of these different nations gathered together and commanded by this herald to worship at the feet of this gold statue. Interesting because it kind of, you know, flash forwards to the real God and the real Christ and, and you know, the real one who's great and that, you know, all fear belongs to and how he is going to call to himself and has called to himself people of every tribe and tongue and nation you read about it in revelation chapter 5 the worship service that's happening in heaven even now that out of every tribe tongue people nation we've been made as kings and priests to our god and we will one day rule on the earth and philippians tells us that one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess to something to someone it's not going to be a metallic image It's going to be a living God who's not a fable, who's not a myth, you know, who's not a figment of our imagination, and nor is he made by our hands. Rather, he's the one that made us. And every person is going to bow to him, whether they like it or not. But we have the instruction here in verse 7 and its implications. This herald stands up and he speaks and really Nebuchadnezzar has the herald do his dirty work, you know. He has this herald stand up a lot like the false prophet does in Revelation chapter 13 verse 15 where it says that the false prophet has been granted power to give breath to an image. Breath is given to an image and that image of the beast will speak and cause as many as would not worship the image and the beast to be put to death and to be killed. See, Daniel chapter three is really a a prophecy and a foreshadowing, a type of what's going to happen in the end times when the Antichrist comes on the scene. He's going to t- declare himself to be God. He's going to have kind of a uh, false trinity set up, you know, where uh, he's got a, a prophet, you know, he's got this uh, Holy Spirit type person that points to him. And and this Holy Spirit's going to say, worship this image. And if you don't, you're going to be killed. And so the, the herald here is kind of the, a picture of the false prophet in Revelation chapter 13. And he says, you know, when the symphony sounds your knees go down or else, or else. And the symphony resounds and, and all sorts of different instruments are, are spoken of there. If you got the King James version, you know, how can you not chuckle when it speaks of the sack butt, you know, which is a form of trombone, <laughs> you know, and you just sometimes, you know, those old languages kind of make you chuckle. But uh, the symphony, it goes off. Today, as we were reading the Bible, we had Russell, you know, and he was the drum and I was the flute, you know, and, and Lindsay was the horn and Lainey was the harp, you know, and, and we just all, okay, are you ready? Ding-a-ling-a-ling, clang-clang-clang, you know, and we're just kind of making this noise. And then, and then, and that, you know, and then they were to bow down, Russell, then they were to worship. But Nebuchadnezzar's marketing strategy is, is pretty interesting. He used music, uses music to kind of charm people into bowing down before the image. And whoever wasn't going to be swayed by the orchestra, was going to be frightened by a furnace. Either you can be swayed, we can do this the easy way, and when the music goes, you bow down, or I'm going I'm to do something else. I'm going to harm you. I'm going to put fear into your heart through this furnace. And so, whoever didn't get the beat with the furnace, you know, or whoever didn't bow with the beat, had the furnace waiting for him. This burning, fiery furnace. And these adjectives are used almost every time it's described. You got to like that. Maybe it's the way that they just wrote back then. But every time it's a burning, fiery furnace. I want to get that through your head. So bow or burn and nothing compels people to worship. You know, nothing like compelling people to worship, but by threatening them. And the interesting thing is you might think, well, isn't that what God does to us? You either worship me or you go to hell. But you see, Jesus isn't just out on, a, out on a rampage, just trying to send people to hell. He's actually trying to save people to, to heaven. And he actually demands our worship, not through his threatening, but through what? His love, right? We love him, First John tells us, because he first loved us. And so it's not wrath that compels us. It's his great love toward us. So, people show up, people stand up, and then people fall down here. We see a fallen condition in these idolaters, that they're, they're idol worshipers, (laughs) you know. They, they have a fear of man. They have this ecumenicalism, unity, at all costs. Just bow down and worship this thing, no matter what. Unity at all costs. We're going to see that in the end times. We're going to see that in the book of Revelation, that the Antichrist will set up this one world government that is accompanied with a one world religion. Everyone will believe in the same God and that God is going to be the Antichrist. We're going to see that's going to turn around to bite them on on the butt. But Warren Wiersbe says, this is more than a political assembly. It was a religious service that was happening in the plains of Dura, complete with music. And it called for total commitment on the part of the worshipers. Note that the word worship is used at least 11 times in this chapter. So, uh, the instruction and the implications if you're disobedient. Then we have in uh, verses 8 through 12, therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image that you've set up. And so we have these astrologers that you know, Chaldeans that are are kind of making a stink about it. They're being tattletales. And we see them in chapter two that they couldn't tell King Nebuchadnezzar his dream or its interpretation, but Daniel could. And Daniel didn't say, look, I'm a Jew. I know the God of the heavens and the earth, the revealer of secrets, I'm going to tell you your secrets, but just keep slaughtering all of these pagans. Keep slaughtering the magicians, the soothsayers, the astrologers. Just kill them because they're all abominable before the Lord. And then, you know, you can just see Daniel see an opportunity to just let godly people um, be serving under the king. And yet he didn't do that. He ended up saving the lives of these people, much like the Lord, you know, that not willing that any should perish, but that they would come to repentance. He didn't ask for them to be killed. But you could sense there, there must be jealousy in these astrologers and in these Chaldeans that Daniel knew the dream and the interpretation and he got promoted. And so here they're just looking for ways to, to trip up these guys. They're looking for ways in Daniel chapter six, we'll see that they'll look for ways to, to put Daniel to death. <clears throat> And so, you know, in verse 12, they say, look, there's some Jews that you've set over affairs of Babylon. And so they kind of owe it to you, Nebuchadnezzar, to, you know, to bow. I mean, you've, you've given them a job, you've given them a home, you've given them pay, you, you've given them great things. And, and look, they're rebelling. And, uh, you know, there's, you know, there's different thoughts on how this all took place. But, you know, I, I think someone was watching these guys to see if they would bow or not. And, um, and we want to notice that that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they didn't, um, try to concoct some kind of coop, you know, to tear down this image, you know, no way we're going to, we're going to bring in a bulldozer, you know, we're going to bring in an arm. We're going to tear this thing. You know, they just didn't bow. They just were quiet. You know, they just, you know, they just didn't bow. They didn't try to dismantle the monument or, or even try to stay away from the furnace. They just didn't bow. And, uh, and, you know, actually, sometimes the Lord would have us go through the furnace. It's in the furnace of affliction that there's refining that takes place. There's purity that happens in our life. But um, these boys are, are told on by the astrologers. And so verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar in rage and fury gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I've set up? Now, if you're ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, and all of those things, the symphony, uh, if you fall down and worship the image which I've made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? So, we've got in verse 14, just this inquisition, you know, this investigation over over these men of integrity. You know, the king was familiar with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, I know someone who recently got some goats, got three goats, and their goats' names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this friend of mine isn't really familiar with the Old Testament. She had a hard time remembering these Babylonian names. And so today I heard uh, one way that, Alistair Begg always remembered as a kid was shake the bed make the bed and to bed we go so might be the way that you would remember it but you know the king was familiar with these guys you read about it in chapter 1 verse 18 that he brought Daniel and Shadrach Meshach and Abednego in before the, you know, the throne, and he interviewed them, and he found them to be ten times more wise and knowledgeable than all the other wise men uh, of Babylon and all the other people. He, he recognized that. He knew who these guys were, and it's implied that he had a respect for them. He promoted them. You know, he had a relationship with Daniel. He had a relationship with all these guys that, that prayed for the dream and the interpretation, and they've been promoted two separate times already in the two chapters that we've studied. And so it seems that he likes these guys, but then he finds out they're not bowing down. And so he kind of gives them the benefit of the doubt. At verse 15, you read, perhaps you just weren't ready. You know, perhaps the band got to it a little bit quick and you weren't ready to boot scoot boogie and bow down, you know? Uh, so, you know, if you're ready, then good. You know, we're gonna, let's do it again. You know, let's, okay, I'll give you another chance. I really like you guys. But if you don't, you know, we're going to throw you into the fiery furnace, And then he just throws out this arrogant, prideful saying, you know, that who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? And you notice in the last couple chapters that these Babylonians, they seem to have kind of a low view of the gods that they worshiped. I mean, these were their gods. And yet in chapter two, the magicians and astrologers and soothsayers and Chaldeans, they didn't even pray one time for the dream to be revealed to them. They just made excuses. Oh, a dream could never be revealed. The gods don't dwell with man. And so no king has ever even asked for a dream to reveal. This is ridiculous. Oh, King. I mean, they had such a low view of their God. And here we see, even after Nebuchadnezzar had had his dream revealed to him, Nebuchadnezzar had a low view of any God. And in chapter two, verse 11 or uh, two, verse 47, he declares uh, jehovah to be the god of gods so he said okay there's you know there's gods and then there's this jehovah that you guys worship he's the god of all the gods but none of them even the revealer of secrets even the revealer of my dream none of them are going to deliver you from my hand right here in the plain of dura i've got the furnace going the images there there's no time for intervention from any god and he's just got this really piddly view of of god or gods and a really high view of himself. Uh, he is, is his God, really. And so, um, so in verses 16 through 18, you see, um, after the Inquisition, we see the integrity of these men. Uh, verse 16, and just real quick before we read their response, First Peter tells us, chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. We're going to see that in their response, in their integrity, they were not surprised by the demand and the threats, you know, the implications of disobeying. They weren't surprised at all about a literal fiery trial that was going to try them. It seems as if they prepared their heart To answer in the manner which they do. So, verse 16 Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We have no need to answer you in this matter. You know, to them, their God, Jehovah, was so great that if there was an argument between bowing down to this image that was just constructed or being loyal and true to the God of the heavens and the earth and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we don't even need to have this argument with you. You know, they were very firm in their response to the king. They didn't fear man. You know, if this is the case, verse 17, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. So verse 16 is marked by this this firmness. You know, they they prepared to enter into a fiery trial like Daniel did in chapter one, verse eight. They'd purposed in their heart before time that no matter what happens, we won't bow. No matter what happens, we won't compromise. We make up our mind right now what we're gonna answer. Are we gonna be corporate being part of this empire? Yes, we'll be corporate. Are we gonna compromise in our part in this empire? no. We'll not compromise. You know, we're not gonna worship. Someone might say something, someone might not say something, they might not see us, but if they do see us not worshiping, we're gonna answer in this way. We're gonna say, throw us in the fire, if you will, but we will not bow down. And let's assume this happens to our nation, like it is happening in in, you know, just you know, dozens and dozens of countries right now. Let's say tomorrow this happens. Will you bow down? You know, purpose in your heart right now. What's going to happen when pastors are drugged to prison first? You know, all of the agendas out there that if anyone speaks anything in opposition to the lifestyle of homosexuality, that's a hate crime and you'll go to jail. So as we start Romans in about eight weeks, probably, and we get to chapter one, we look at the depravity of man, and homosexuality is just one of those uh, sins that's an abomination to the Lord. And we speak out on that. What if I'm led off to prison, and Kevin and Chad, who stand by me as elders in the church, they're drugged to prison? You know, so then one of you comes and you begin to teach, and then and then just we're raided. What are we going to do? Are we going to compromise, or are we ready to be thrown into the fiery furnace? You know, when you go away to, to the university for you young kids, and you go to Marcus Borg's class, you know, where he tries to persuade you that, you know, agnosticism is, is the way to go. And he pleads with you to bow before his false god. Are you going to do that? Or are you going to purpose in your heart before you go off to college? Man, I don't care what anybody says. I'm not bowing down. I don't care what anybody does a purpose in my heart, not to bow down. So there's this firmness, there's this faith. And in verse 18, there's more firmness. But if not, even if we're not delivered from the fiery furnace, let it be known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you've set up. More just strength. Even if he doesn't deliver us from the fire, we're ready to die here today. We're not going to compromise. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. You guys know it, that we're not to fear those who can kill the body, but we're to fear those that can send our body and our soul to hell. And Nebuchadnezzar just threatened a bodily death. You know, a, a fire of an instant, but a denying of the Lord's. It means a, den- a, a fire for all of eternity. And man, you know what? Even if you're to burn me today, we're not going to bow down. Job chapter 13, we mentioned it on Sunday that even if the Lord would slay us, still I will trust him. Or as Habakkuk says, you know what? Even if the fruit tree has no blossoms or if there's no grapes on the vine or if the labor of the olive would fail, even if the the, uh, fields lie empty and barren or all the flocks die out in the field, if the cattle barns are empty, I will still rejoice in the Lord, the God of my salvation. No matter what happens, no matter what, I trust the Lord. I'll obey the Lord. My life's set apart for the Lord. And so, verse 19, you think he liked that answer? Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that the heat of the furnace or that, that they heat the furnace seven times more than it usually would be heated. A face full of fury, this face that changes expression. We see earlier that he was enraged, and now it's even more rage. It was so fun with the family reading this to, Russell, what's your face of fury, you know? And he's just like, this is what he's been doing lately. Dad and mom, are you mad at me? No, we're not mad at you. Why? Because you did this to me. That's you know, kind of what we do when we're in, you know, public, and you're just like, Russell, you know, so he's just, are you mad at me? Why? Because you're doing this. Oh, I wasn't, you know, and uh, so this was Russell's face of fury. I think that's what Nebuchadnezzar was doing, you know. Then Laney was just like, "Ah," you know, and Lindsay's was horrific, um, but... is he was just and you just look at his face you see you know he's boiling over he's hit the boiling point and almost in a manipulative fashion do you see how angry you're making me right now and we're told by the Lord Jeremiah was told in chapter 1 verse 7 the Lord said to me do not say I'm just a youth Jeremiah, don't say you're a youth. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, don't say you're just a youth. Daniel, don't say you're just a youth. Harrison, don't just say, don't say you're a youth. You know, don't let that be any excuse or any reason to be afraid. Doesn't matter your age. For you shall go to whom all I send you. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, he tells Jeremiah. For I'm with you to deliver you, says the Lord. And the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said, behold, I've put my words in your mouth. And I'll tell you, it was interesting going up to this young man tonight. And you just never know how things are going to turn, you know, and go up. I'm just being nice and, and, just, and just invite him to church tonight and just, you know, immediately becomes hostile and um and, and just mocking me and um you know a seventeen year old mocking me, you know uh, you know I'm almost thirty you know, and I've been a youth pastor for eight years, and you know, and just my blood started to to pump, you know, and uh, I just felt the tingling sensation and and co- a combination of anger you know, and a combination of fear and, and, and not so much afraid of him, but afraid I was going to lash out at him. Um, but also, you know, a bit of fear. I'm, I'm being mocked now. I'm being you know, um, being challenged right now and just praying that the Holy Spirit would help me to continue to speak in love and to just sense the Holy Spirit, just push away those emotions of fear and to just bring reason and logic and love. And I just got to keep reaffirming to him that, that I'm loving him in my discussion he's being hostile to me you know and i'm just loving him and and um but you know to not be afraid of their face watching his face get red watching just the anger you know kevin said he drove by and he saw me and he was like whoa dude what was going on you know i saw you using your hands and i saw him just you know kind of yeah so anyways um just we can't be afraid of the faces of men we can't fear men We're told by David that that is a snare. That is a trap that the enemy wants us to get into. Do we fear man or do we fear God? These guys, you know, they, they didn't, let this expression change mess them up. And in his wrath, he cranks up the heat of the furnace seven times. And really it's foolishness to do that. He was already planning on executing people. That furnace was set to go. And yet in his wrath, we're going to crank it up seven times. And that's just. You know, I, I don't know what it's going to do to them, but I'm just going to show them how ticked off I am right now. And in the process, he ends up killing uh, his mighty men of valor who probably had to walk these guys in so they couldn't run out. And, and he loses, guys, and it turns out to be no loss for the servants of the Lord. As we see in uh, verse 20, he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. These men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their garments, lots of flammable stuff, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound in the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. And so in verse 24, we have intervention because of verse 25, the incarnation. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. And the fourth and the form of the fourth is like the son of God. There's an extra man in the fire. Is it one of the soldiers? Has he been revived? It doesn't appear to be a soldier and no one appears to be hurt. And that fourth person appears to be like the son of God. Why would he appear to be like the son of God? Perhaps it actually is the son of God. I believe here it's in Daniel chapter three. We see a Christophany. An Old Testament appearance of Jesus, an Old Testament appearance of God becoming flesh, the incarnation, the in the flesh of God. You see, in the incarnation, man didn't become a God like the Mormons believe, but rather God became a man. As Calvin says, in so doing, God accommodated us. He came to our level a great act of love. You see many Christophanies throughout the Old Testament and uh, you see it to, to Abraham where Jesus appears as Melchizedek. Read about it in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, that Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine and that he was the priest of God most high before there were ever priests, before there were ever Levites. And, and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who's delivered your enemies, those kings, into your hand. And, and Abraham gave Melchizedek a tithe of all. Then Hebrews chapter 7 gives us a commentary on who Melchizedek is. And here's some descriptions that should show you who Melchizedek is in this commentary. Melchizedek is the king of Salem, which means king of peace. Melchizedek Is without father or mother, he's without genealogy, having neither end of days or beginning of life, but he's made like the Son of God. Melchizedek remains a priest continually. Who's it describing here? Melchizedek we're told in Hebrews was such a great man that even Abraham paid a tenth of all the spoils to and through the loins of Abraham all the priests that would ever exist paid tithes to this great high priest who wasn't from the tribe of Levi but he had no mother he had no father he had no beginning of days and no end of days who is this man this king of peace. I believe it's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus, a Christophany. He appears to Abraham again in Genesis chapter 22. He appears to Hagar in Genesis chapter 16, verse 17, as the angel of the Lord. And Hagar would end up saying, you are the God who sees. And Joshua, we see the angel of the Lord again. And Gideon, we see the angel of the Lord appear and then it, the story continues so that it's actually the Lord turning and speaking to Gideon. It's Jesus. Jesus was before Bethlehem, the baby in a manger. But Colossians chapter one tells us that he created all things and to him and for him and through him are all things. He's the creator. And so uh, we we see Jesus, I believe here again, again, uh, in Daniel chapter 3, we see Jesus fighting on behalf of Israel in 2 Kings 19, verse 35. In Isaiah 6, we see him on the throne in glory. And so, possible, uh, and I, I think probable, I think, you know, it is, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar is seeing the Son of God in the furnace with the boys. And so, in verse 26, Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning, fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. You know, in in a couple chapters, we're going to read of Darius making a rash decision like this. And he has Daniel thrown into the lion's den. And he just, all night, can't wait to get to the mouth of the den and, and have see if Daniel's okay. And so, you know, these guys making these rash execution decisions, we see he's like, oh wait, go to the mouth of the furnace and call him on over. Verse 27 And the satraps, administrators, governors, the king's counselors gathered together, some 300,000 men probably, and they saw that these men, on whose body the fire had no power, the hair of their head is not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of the fire uh, was not on them. You know, we see that uh, those that put their trust in the God of Abraham, those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, you know, the, the power of the fire will have n- nothing on them. You know, Hades and hell have no sting. First Corinthians chapter 15 tells us. Peter is told after he declares, I say that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. And then he goes on to say, and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Upon the rock, that is the the truth. That Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And if you would believe upon that, the gates of Hades have no power upon you. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 2 says, When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they won't overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. And you just picture Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's what Isaiah 43, verse 2 is talking about. Man, that was a prophecy over what we were going to go through. You were walking with us, Lord. And that, the fire had no power. It didn't even singe us. In Hebrews chapter 11, which is known as the hall of faith or the hall of fame for those of the faith, we have so many references of just the, those that have gone before us. But, and it all gives glory to the Lord. But we see in that uh, passage that uh, there were some with so many trials, trials of mockings and scourgings and of chains and imprisonment, stones, sawn in two, people that were tempted, wandered about in sheepskins and, and goatskins. But in verse 34, we see there were those that quenched the violence of fire. And later on in the chapter, we see it was through those guys that the world or it was be, the world wasn't worthy of those guys you know those guys who just knew who their god was and trusted in their god and it doesn't speak of the bigness of the guys it speaks of the bigness of the god it speaks of the glory of the god but listen to the end of hebrews chapter 11 all these guys you know from abraham and moses and moses's parents and you know david and samson you know just all these guys that are in the hall of faith it ends with this and all of these guys having obtained a good testimony through faith did not receive the promise god having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us It wasn't over with them. God's still working in a radical way today that we have the promise of the kingdom today that's already and yet not yet. We have the promise of the Holy Spirit that we can walk in the power that God's provided for us today. We have the promise of redemption and salvation that that came through the Messiah that was foretold thousands and thousands of years. And those guys didn't get to have all the fun in the Old Testament. But today in 2011, we get to have fun as well. You know, perhaps there's a journal in heaven of, you know, just every time that you stepped out in faith, believing that your God was great. Every time you were willing to be persecuted, every time you were willing to be mocked, those guys weren't made perfect apart from us. trying to remember how I got there. (laughs) Um, Oh, they quenched the violence of fire and they're mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not worship any God except their own God. Here we have just this this invocation, this blessing brought upon these boys, you know, a blessing upon God, the God of these boys who sent his angel. We see these characteristics that were obvious to Nebuchadnezzar that they these servants trusted in the Lord. And the Lord is a shield to those that trust in him, Proverbs tells us. And, and Isaiah 26, 3 tells us that you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You know, Sunday we mentioned the storms of this life. Tonight, you know, you could you could just notice, man, there's fiery trials. And that even in the midst of the fiery trials, you know, that the Lord is a shield about those who trust in him. And what a, I remember my pastor's wife in Corvallis praying this out at a prayer meeting. And it just, it was for me that night, going through some hard things, but you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. If you're going through a fire tonight, if you're going through a storm, just trust in the Lord. Just verbalize that as we close in worship tonight. Just, Lord, I trust you. I'm just in my faith is just making, I'm making it manifest right now by just confessing. I trust Lord, though you slay me, still I trust you. Vocalize it tonight. They, they had frustrated the king's word. Who will deliver you from my hand? Oh, he will. <laughs> you know, they frustrated the king's man. They yielded their bodies. As Paul said in Acts chapter 20, when they told him, don't go to Jerusalem, you're going to be killed there. And Paul said, you know what? None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish the race with joy. Do you count your life dear to yourself? Revelation chapter 12 writes about the saints who are murdered during the tribulation. And it says that they did not love their lives even to the death. Is that said about you? Is that said about me? How much do you love your life? As Matthew tells us, chapter 16, verse 25, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. And so just the, the integrity is seen on these guys and it points Nebuchadnezzar to the God. And so there's a command here in verse 29. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language that speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap. That's kind of his favorite way of torturing people. Um, just, oh no, let me guess, you're going to cut us in pieces and turn our houses into ash heaps. Ah, it's getting old, Nebby. think of something else. Um, but uh, there's no other God who can deliver like this. You shall not serve or worship any God except you know, um, except this God. And, uh, you know, it's interesting in chapter two, verse 47, you just look over probably one page in your Bible, but notice the King's answer to Daniel after his dream was interpreted. He says this, truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of Kings and a revealer of secrets. Since he could reveal this secret, it it would kind of seem that Nebuchadnezzar had some sort of you know, there was something that happened, and yet I don't think you could call it a conversion. I don't think you could say there was a change in him, especially the change in chapters two and three. You know, all of a sudden he's building an idol and commanding people to worship it, and he's mocking God. You know, and uh, and so you know, to Nebuchadnezzar, God was just kind of a god amongst many other gods, maybe even the greatest. God of all the gods, but he hadn't really had a conversion experience. And I even believe that here at the end of this chapter, after seeing, you know, the son of God in the furnace and watching this, and and after all he's seen, all the experiences he's had with God, all the stirrings he's had in his hearts, I still don't believe at the end of chapter three that he's been converted. I still don't believe that he's had a changed life. And why do, why do I say that? Because here, you know, he just, again, speaks of God just being one of many. He, he's a great, he's a greatest of all gods. He's, he's just the greatest king of all the kings. But, you know, he's just one among many. And it's just interesting how many people I talk to who would say that they believe in God. You're like Nebuchadnezzar. You believe in God and you can attest like Nebuchadnezzar that he's moved mightily on earth and maybe even in your own life. I've, I've talked to people who, yes, I, I believe in God and yes, he's answered my prayers so many times and, and he's, I've seen him. I just know that he's there. I hear this a lot when I talk to people, but they've never actually surrendered to him as being their God the only God, their Lord, their master, their savior. They've not placed their trust in him in such a way that anything that they would bring to the table that's of merit is cast off the table and all that Jesus brings to the table is set upon you. They're trusting in Christ's righteousness. They're trusting in Christ's lordship. And let me move this from a they statement to a you statement. There are many of you who like Nebuchadnezzar have had a stirring of heart. God has answered prayer. God has healed me before. God has, I've seen him work. I know that he's there. And yet there's never been a change in your life. There's never been a change. Whether it was you know, the day that the, the pastor talked to you and, and you prayed a prayer with him, or the day you were at a Billy Graham crusade, or you were watching it on television and there was a stirring in you and you might have prayed a prayer. And yet, Romans tells us consider the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you'll be cut off. In the New Testament, there must be a continuing in Christ. Nebuchadnezzar, you just don't see that. As Matthew Henry said, strong convictions often come short of sound conversion. And so you tonight, have you surrendered all to Jesus, all to him you freely give? And have you received upon yourself his free gift of his righteousness, of his lordship, of his sovereignty. So as you look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Ken, you can come on up. We can go get the, the children out of the children's ministry classes if, if uh, somebody could go do that. Maybe Barb, if you could just go bring everybody on in and, and um as you look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, would you have bowed down? If it was happening today, would you have bowed down? There were a lot of ways that that these guys could have reasoned in their heart why they could bow down, to to get out of trouble. Perhaps they thought, man, we're not being asked to denounce Jehovah. We're just being asked to just bow down and, and, you know, just perform an, an act towards this image. Perhaps they would have reasoned in their head that we can bow down on the outside, but on the inside we're standing up. God knows that. Perhaps they would have reasoned, we'll bow down now and we'll confess our sins later. And after all, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And that way we'll avoid all conflict that might come. Or perhaps they would think, man, the king has done so much for us. We kind of owe this to him. You know, every man has his price, right? Is it really that hard to just bow down? Kind of like Nebuchadnezzar. He likes us. Or perhaps they would think we're far from home. We're like college boys. We're far from home. Things are different here. Let's just go ahead and bow down. We're not in Israel anymore. We're in Babylon. Let's conform. The Bible tells us other men have messed up and God is merciful. He'll be merciful to us. Or, hey guys, if we bow down today, we'll live another day to be useful for God tomorrow. So why didn't these guys bow down? Why not just bow down and just not make a big deal about it? Because of Exodus 20, verse two, I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, the third and fourth generation. God said it. I believe it. God said, don't bow down. So I'm not going to bow down. As one man said, we have men of conviction here, standing out in a sea of conformity. And so there's a line drawn in the sand tonight, even to Wednesday night Bible study attenders. As Elijah drew the line on Mount Carmel, today's the day of decision. What God are you going to serve? Are you going to purpose in your heart this day? Should you be forced to bow or to the furnace? Which God are you going to serve? There's a line drawn in the sand. And may we say tonight, like Joshua, as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. Let's go ahead and worship. And let's just, Maybe for you tonight, you just would do that. You would confess your trust in the Lord tonight.